Hello and welcome back to the Steve Thomas Live podcast, the place for all things adventure cycling. And today my guest is the marathon man himself, mountain biking 24-hour world champion, multiple world champion, a holder of numerous FKTs or non-FKTs as the case may be due to complications in recording, winner of countless epic endurance races all over in the far-flung corners of the world is Canadian racer, Mr. Corey Wallace. Hello, Corey. Hello, Steve. And how, how are you? I am good. I am trying to recover from the last 24-hour race, so just you caught me at a good time. <laughs> yeah, it's quite an early start to, to the season. I mean, I know in, in the past that you've done stage races and races in Nepal, South America, Central America, this time of the year, but starting with the 24 hours is a bit of a kicking into the season. Yeah, no, I came back from Nepal. I had two good months of training over there, just big, big days. And then I didn't plan on this 24 hour race, but my buddy, Brian Cook from the Bicycle Cafe in Canmore said, come on down. I got my place down here and I want to Let's go make a weekend of it. So I said, okay, like, why not? I got some good, good miles in my legs, no intensity yet, but um, I figured Old Pueblo, the 24 hours in Old Pueblo is a good one to start on. It's a pretty flat and fast course. You can just diesel it around, and I figured I'd have a good shot at the, the win, and I could test out a few more things before the next 24 hour world champs. So it seemed like a nice opportunity, and it's also the benefit of. The amount of base you gain from one of these 24s is pretty nice, so it sets you up for a strong season. You've won the 24-hour World Championship, is it four times now? Five times. Five. And can you can you tell me a little bit about it? Because obviously, it's I say obviously, thankfully, it, it's a non-UCI event. Is it held, does it take place every year? Yep, it takes place every year. But yeah, with five titles in there. Your background, you're, well, I say, obviously from Jasper. I've been up there many years ago, just just once at the end after doing the Icefields Parkway. That's uh, quite a long way from from just about anywhere, really. I guess. I mean, amazing off-road biking and adventures, but I guess pretty pretty harsh winters. How on earth did did you get into well mountain biking and with the endurance side of it and particularly twenty four hours? Well, it's kind of a little, well a bit of a long story, but I started off in Jasper, nice little town of five thousand people, and it's just surrounded by mountain bike trails. But I was a I was a hockey player, so I played hockey in the winters, and then I used cycling in the summers just to get to fishing holes and stay in shape. And then when I was 13, there's a couple of professional cyclists in town, Matthew Decor and Dana Ruddy. They really got me into the cycling scene. Just So I started racing a bit in the summers, hockey in the winters, and that carried on until I was 20. Then I stopped cycling and went to hockey full-time for a couple of years. And then in the back of my head, I knew I wanted to be a, a cyclist. So I thought, okay, well, I want to get back into it. I'm 23 now, so I flew down to the south tip of Chile and bike-packed up to Peru. It's like a two-month uh, bike-packing journey, yeah. and that really set my base back. And then I started doing a couple of races, like the 24 Hours of Adrenaline in Canmore and Laruda in Costa Rica. 
and had some good results there. And then the Kona factory team picked me up. And from there, it just blossomed every year. I raced XCO and the shorter events, but definitely the 24 hours and the longer stage race is what I excelled in. So that's what put my focus. And yeah, I've just made a career of it the last 12, 14 years. It's it's quite quite an amazing lifestyle that you live. Uh, we've we've caught up in various parts of the world over the years. You you can always be anywhere and half expect if it's a, a rugged environment that you might turn up with a small bike packing bag on your on your your, your under your saddle and a backpack on. How 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 important is the travel and the adventure element to it outside of? or in conjunction to the competitive side of it to you? I think that's basically the main part of it for me is the adventure and going to new places and meeting new people. And then I found a way to tie it in the racing as well. So I basically spent my winters overseas exploring and just going to check out cool areas. And then in the back of my head, I know I'm going to race in the summer. So I put a bit put emphasis in like recovery and Maybe I go hard a couple of days and try and time a bit of training. But for me, the, the main thing is just to get to explore the world and the people. And yeah, I mean, that's what's kept me going all these years. I've been racing probably 20 now. And yeah, I think it's just the adventure side that's <laughs> been the key. Uh, over over that time, the sport has, has, has evolved an awful lot, uh, especially the bikepacking side of it. And the obviously the, the emergence of, of gravel and gravel events and ultras how what that's also brought with it a lot of changes both in demographic of the people that that that, that do these events and buy bikes these days but also also in the opportunities and the growing opportunities available those outside of the the mainstream system as in a lot of the ultra races and so on has this evolved and with the whole thing like produce people nowadays producing their own media social media videos and so on has the, the, this, this whole evolution changed the way that you plan the way that you go about things has it given you more freedom less freedom how is it how has it evolved for you well i guess the main thing is i used to be like the kind of the weird guy doing the long races bike packing the train and you know it's kind of like what's he up to and now it's mainstream which is which is cool it means there's more sponsors there's more money there's more races the races get more coverage so it's been awesome um and yeah it's interesting because basically what's going on now is what i did my whole career so it's (laughs) yeah it's it's nice um that, that more people have joined this side and adventure side and bikepacking and the longer races. I think it's, it's good for the sport. And I mean, cycling goes in, in the circle, like the full circle, like it's the flavor of the month, I think. And then it'll, something else will come up, gravel racing and then something else. So yeah, anyways, right now everyone's in the long stuff. So that's cool. And it's definitely probably helped my career in the sense that it's no longer the, the rogue races. It's kind of the mainstream, like, you look at the Lifetime Grand Prix and the big marathon races, stuff like Unbound XL and Unbound 200 Miler. They're yeah. big races now. What about 
a decade ago it was just like you're crazy if you're doing that stuff <laughs> yeah yeah i mean with, with with all of this and and now there are so many emerging races some of them packaged some of them grassroots how how do you actually figure out a plan for 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 your season for the year of what you're going to do what matters to you what may matter to 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 sponsors uh, how how do you figure out a plan when there's so many i mean previously there weren't that many events around i mean now there's a plethora of them how, how do you manage that yeah it's an interesting question because all through the years i had the flexibility for my sponsors to go do whatever i wanted to pretty much so i was always trying to pick far-flung races mongolia bike challenge or yeah um down in brazil or Costa Rica. So for me, I was trying to pick adventure races. And then in the summer, North America is so awesome. They're riding up here. So like BC bike race, Trans Rockies, Breck Epic. I'd always try and hit those ones up. And then for me, the focus has always been the world 24 hour champs. I think it took me eight tries to finally win one. But okay. so the season's always been kind of based a bit around that. Like one's world 24 hour champs. And then let's make sure we're primed for that. So do a few stage races before some shorter events to prime, like get, get fired up. But yeah, having the flexibility that I had, a lot of the race seasons based on invites as well. Who's okay. Who invites me to come. And does, does it do, do the invites? I mean, these days there's, I notice there's a lot of uh, influencers, influencers of relatively, I guess it's because uh that side of it the youtubers and so on i guess there's there's a fairly raw and new element to it but i see a lot of influencers with very low followings and not of a very high standard in results terms getting invited to 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 new events has has it, has it increased uh that that side of it that that you that you get invites and that you 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 get help from organizations to go places is there a kind of uh well, not an infight between them or whatever for for publicity for exposure i think it's actually i don't think it's helped in the sense that it's, it's just more competitive now yeah. where some races will choose to take the influencer with fifty thousand followers rather than like the the competitive racer yeah so i don't think it's really helped but i don't think it's really damaged it either because there's more opportunities out there but um, it just really depends what the race is focused on. Like if they want like a competitive race or if they just want to have influencers there. <laughs> yeah. And when is the next 24-hour Worlds and where? Well, it was set to be in Europe, but due to the war, they had to change location. Okay. So it's up in the air right now, actually. It'll likely be later in the season. But we're waiting to hear the official announcement. When we're talking about disturbances in the world and various things that have changed, everyone's plans have changed their lives in recent years. We met up for a photo shoot just just before COVID kicked off, and we talked. Oh, well, we didn't actually know what it was at the time. I guess neither of us figured how things were going to pan out. But you end, you ended up in Nepal and a place where you've got a, a special affinity with, but. You, you. I know it's been mentioned and talked about many times, but you, 
you you ended up stuck in Nepal for quite a long time, but you were up in the Solo Kumbu and ended up in in a monastery there. That that must have been an incredible. I mean, I can't really imagine a, a better place to to end up, particularly for somebody who loves the outdoors so much in the mountains. But to be to end up in 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 that environment surrounded by monks, I guess a relative lack of connectivity to the world in such a a strange time. I mean, how how was it emotionally and mentally to find yourself there in, with what was going on in the world? It, looking back on it is best case scenario. At the time, I mean, you worry about your, your family back home and what's going to happen. Like none of us knew what was going to actually happen. But I mean, you couldn't ask for a better spot stuck up in the Himalayas, living with a bunch of monks that just don't worry about the the COVID situation. And yeah, just very peaceful. I had my bike with me so I could go for rides. And for, it was really ideal setup. Um, yeah, I, I thought it was kind of lucky in, in the sense. Yeah. And yeah, I mean... And after that, I ended up in, well, I think I was in the solo Kumbu for four months plus okay. a couple months before. So like half a year is up there pretty much. Yeah. And eventually my bike was basically broken to a one speed and it was turning into the monsoon in Nepal. So that meant all the trails were getting really slick and I was trying to crash and it was just like, okay, it's probably time get out of here before I have a real accident so I I went back to Kathmandu on my bike instead of taking a jeep where I'd probably catch COVID with all the, the locals in there yeah so so as a catalyst who got me back to Kathmandu which was in a lockdown so there's no traffic and no pollution yeah so I went up there for another three months and the whole city was just a cyclist paradise pretty much it was it was unreal yeah. that, that city is one of the best cycling cities in the world um, unfortunately, usually it's polluted and full of yeah. traffic, but when it's clean and traffic free, it's, it's unreal. The trap, the, the riding is 360 around the city trails and it, it's amazing. So, yeah. That's one thing that I guess, unless you've experienced it and, as you know, in this part of the world of Southeast Asia, uh, we get, we get a hell of a lot of seasonal, very extended seasonal burning and air pollution. And the last time I was in Nepal, actually, up, up in Pokhara, uh, went up to Mustang, which was good, but it came down. It was it was really pretty bad in Pokhara. And in the end, I, I had to I did, you just get out. It was so bad. And there was no guarantee that there was going to be any, any fresh air higher up uh, or how much higher. How recently you did a, a, a trans-Nepal trip, bikepacking trip with the former world marathon champion christoph souser how how do you kind of like handle the the that side of the air pollution and uh, avoid it is it an issue is it for 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 you personally yeah i'm definitely sensitive to it growing up in canada we have pretty fresh air we're blessed with that so i've always had a challenge with the pollution it just i just feel sick and start coughing and yeah but it has improved the last few years and i was actually surprised when 
Christoph Sauger and I biked across to East Nepal is end of November. And it wasn't that yeah. polluted. It was very tolerable. Yeah. Which I was surprised. I actually thought we were going to hit some, some heavy stuff. But then later on, just before I left Nepal towards the end of January, the pollution really moved in. Like yeah. they were mostly came from India where they'd been a lot of burning. Yeah. And I rode myself into a grave almost like I did 180k into the solo kumbu and I was sick for what three days after just mm. inhaled way too much of it yeah and yeah so it's definitely a threshold so then I knew like right now I mean the winter's the worst time you get this dry yeah. and cold so that just wasn't conducive to training I actually went up higher up to like 3,000 meters to get out of it yeah and that that really made a difference, but yeah, that's, that's a problem in many parts of the world now is finding fresh yeah, air. It's, uh, yeah, it, it, it's, I mean, it's, it's something uh, coming from the Western world that it, it's hard for people to comprehend and very often they visit somewhere and they just think it's the, the weather and it's only like this for the, for the week or so that they're there. Unfortunately, people living on the ground there have to sort of suffer it for months on end and the, without any escape. It's the, the 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 trip with Christoph. Quite I'm quite surprised when I saw it. I mean, I, I know Christoph, and it's probably a little bit out of his normal realm of of things, particularly since he's he's retired from from competitive racing. That is, how did how did that trip come around, and how did you end up together? It's interesting. A fellow named Richard Williams is writing a book, The Road to Nepal. And it's about biking the Mid-Hills Highway, 1700K from border to border. And the Mid-Hills Highway is a new highway in the, in the Mid-Hills in Nepal to connect a bunch of communities which don't have much okay. economical support or anything. Yeah. But he just wants to help promote tourism in these areas. So he rode it over the last two winters with some buddies. And he wanted Christoph Sauger to write the foreword for the book. So then Christoph thought, well, I should come ride somewhere with myself. So his plan was to ride from Pokhara to the eastern border, about 1,000, 1,200K. Yeah. And he was going to do it by himself. And then the local bike shop, Himalayan Single Track, they said, well, it might be good to go with someone that is familiar with Nepal a bit. And I think Corey is around, so maybe he can accompany you. And it just worked out. Yeah, it was the same time as a race in Nepal, but this is a much better opportunity. So off we went. Christoph had his gravel bike out on a mountain bike. And for the first few days, I had the advantage because the roads are pretty rough. Yeah. And then the last days, he had the advantage. But, I mean, yeah, it was just it was unreal. He's such a laid-back guy and obviously yep. super fit. So we just ride from sunrise to sunset pretty much and <laughs> it was a very very amazing trip i mean it must have been must have been strange for you for christoph i would imagine it's the first time he's he's been in nepal and done a, a remote adventure like that to actually see see somebody else experiencing that that environment somewhere it's something that you're familiar with seeing new I mean, whether it's painted trucks, whether it's honking buzzes, whether it's uh, open kitchens, 
whatever it may be. What, what was it like for you seeing somebody else experiencing that, something that you're so used to? Yeah, I mean, going on the trip, I wasn't sure. I like to me, I know Christoph Souser is this world champion Swiss cyclist that dominates Cape Epic and he's races around the world. And and I thought, okay, like let's see what how this goes. I have no idea what kind of guy he is. I hope he's up for for Nepal's adventures because things aren't going to be Swiss style over here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like when you order breakfast at seven, it's going to probably come at eight. And yeah, <laughs> like things aren't going to go clockwork. But the first day, I realized that he just like he just soaked. He is he fit in perfectly into the environment. He just went with the flow, no stress. And yeah, I mean, he packed lights, realizing that we we're probably going to suck in the dark a few times. And yeah, yeah, no, it was. I mean, he he's a well-traveled rider, so he yeah, yeah he is fully ready for it. And for for you personally, I mean, it's been many years now. You spent good amounts of time outside of being forcibly stuck in Nepal or such. You spent a lot of time in Nepal. I mean, what 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 is it so special about that place that draws you back again and again? I don't think I've ever been to a place which is so conducive to cycling. It's a third world country, so there's not very many like personal vehicles. So the streets are pretty barren of traffic yet the government's been developing these roads everywhere like every village has a road it seems now yeah. and basically they build these roads and then they get damaged by the monsoon so they're almost undrivable a lot of them but that just means you have these perfectly built jeep tracks for mountain bikes everywhere and yeah. up in the mountains everywhere the locals invite you into their house to stay like in the tea houses there's always a spot to stay. There's always food. People are welcoming everywhere. I've never had any problem with dangers of like dangerous people or even like no one even steals stuff over the seams. I can yeah. show up in a town, and just leave my bike fully loaded and go walk in a restaurant for an hour and come back and nothing's even touched. Yeah. So it's, I've never been somewhere so welcoming and it's tough riding. Roughly. Yeah rough terrain, lots of climbing, high altitude. So you have to be ready for that side. And there's not a lot of infrastructure out there. You have to sometimes stay in clay huts or whatever. <laughs> um, yeah. And you have to like eating rice and beans. But <laughs> over the years, it's definitely getting more and more developed. So you can find nicer hotels and more food options. And yeah, I mean, it's just endless the opportunities there for bikepacking adventures and I think 95% of the people go to like the Annapurna, Pokhara, Everest regions. And the far west and far east are pretty much untouched. And I got a glimpse of both those this past trip. And it just it just blew my mind like what's available. I've been in Nepal, I think, 10 or 12 times. And it's always been kind of in the similar regions. Yep. But now I've just discovered a whole new part, which is like 10 times the size of what I've been exploring. So it's got, yeah. it has a lifetime of adventures over there. The, I mean, things have changed on the regulation and legality points there as regards foreign trekkers in the parks and the uh, reservations and so on, having to, to have guides. From a, from a mountain biking point of view, uh, 
you've taken on some, which we'll talk about after this, the FKTs on some of these classic routes like to Everest Base Camp, uh, Annapurna Circuit many times, uh, which I say we'll talk about just after this, but how how now, how has that changed on the ground with, because in, in mountain bike terms, uh, it, it's very different. Uh, there, there are an awful lot of trekking guides around that can be hired. Not sure that they, they, they should be or need to be or and the impact it will have on tourism. But how from from a, a, a mountain biking point of view, there are not enough mountain bike guides in Nepal to, to actually facilitate, particularly the independent bike packers and so on. What, what was your experience and, and your your notes of, of how that was actually working on the ground? Well, I think they announced that rule without thinking it through because there was a lot of backlash. Yep. And the reality is, is that there's a lot of good guides here, but there's also a lot of guides that shouldn't be guides. Yeah. There's no real, um, yeah licensing that's very proper i guess so i i think there's enough backlash that they just decide not to enforce it and as of now the rule is still in place but the everest region they straight up said we're not doing this we think yeah. people should have the freedom to hike solo if they want so when they announced that the Annapurna region kind of had to open up too because everyone's okay ah. yeah everyone's going to the everest region so yep. basically, the average region <laughs> turned everything around for everyone. Yeah. And yeah, no one's been enforcing it, thank goodness. Because yeah, you're right. As a mountain biker, independent mountain biker, I I just, a, a person like me just can't go do this stuff in Nepal anymore. Yep. Um, like you're, yeah. So it's, it's lucky they, they decide not to enforce it. And the unfortunate thing is it's chased a lot of tourists away. Because they think this rules in place. Well, it is on paper. So a lot of hikers and bikers are going to different countries that don't enforce a mandatory guide. So it, it would be nice for the Nepal tourism to officially announce, like, okay, this isn't a rule. <laughs> Certainly put me off uh, the the uncertainty of it. Going back to, I mean, I'd love to go and do do Annapurna, not necessarily on a bike these days, but hiking ABC and so on. But it, it's 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 quite a deterrent to. I mean, there's like yourself or like me or whatever, perhaps fairly proficient in the outdoor environment in the mountains. You you can come to harm in any situation, but we wouldn't we're not not going to be signing up for a package tour. But this, I, th I think you did the. Did you not do the Annapurna on on foot or spend some time hiking there this last season? Yeah, I did some hiking up in the Annapurna base camp region. What's it called? Yeah, Annapurna Sanctuary. The sanctuary, yeah. And yeah, I mean, there's no there's no enforcement there. You okay. have to buy your ticket still. But yep. yeah, I don't think I don't think they're enforcing it anywhere except in the what do you call it? The Lantang. Like the upper, yeah, the restricted zones, Upper Mustang. Dolpo, yeah. there's a few other ones. There, yeah. they enforce the guide rule, and they have like big permits, like five hundred dollars or whatever. Yeah. yeah. So there's a couple of regions that they still like it's enforced, but everywhere else is 
from what I can tell, pretty much a free for all. On the your 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 riding in Nepal and some of your in my mind some of your greatest feats, probably because of the location as well as the the physical element of being in Nepal, with the Annapurna circuit being one you probably don't know but i mean going back to the late 90s i went out to to nepal sponsored by carrie moore and working with community action nepal and i was going to try and be the the first person to to do the annapurna circuit even back there back then it was like an 11 day trek there weren't the connecting jeep tracks and so on uh, it it didn't didn't happen i got really sick before that from food poisoning which kind of like escalated and ended up didn't didn't come off and the Annapurna circuit is, is forever evolving and changing but what you've done the times that that you've taken for for the circuit uh, are, are just just mind-boggling but uh, you, you've done it a few times now but how going into that first of all and planning and want to do uh, an FKT or a fastest time on the the circuit, how how on earth did you contemplate doing that and doing it so fast with the elevation gain, the drop riding, riding in the dark? Can you tell me a little bit about taking that on in such an environment? The snow is, of course, as well, and the weather. Yeah, after racing the Yak Attack multiple years, the plan kind of came about just like, hey, I think we do this in 24 hours, <laughs> and the first year, I almost didn't do it. I was back in Kathmandu, and I thought, you know what, it's getting cold in the mountains. Let's just call this off. We'll use too many X factors. And then I thought, like, you know what? I'm never going to do this if I don't do it now. I just got to go put my backpack on, just go and learn. <laughs> learn what happens when you try and do it in one day. And so that's what I did. I started out at midnight by myself. And, and that was the best case of heart and just went for it. And I remember I got to the pass in okay time. And then I struggled big time going over the pass. I think I ate too much buckwheat bread or something before. Mm. And I just couldn't eat for the last 10 hours of the, <laughs> the event or the FKT. And I thought multiple times, like, okay, I'm going to stop here, going to stop here. But I also saw, like, Hey, I still have time to do this under 24 hours, which is my goal. And I just kept moving. And eventually I finished it in 23 hours and 57 minutes. <laughs> and the last hour I was going like full gas. Like I'd been going so slow for like nine hours, but then I was like, you know what? I can still do this. And I just got this like weird adrenaline rush and, and got it done. And then after that, I, I just learned so much from that trip. I was like, okay. I had to come back with like proper lights, proper food, and actually like nail this down. So I've come back three more times going the normal way. No, two more times. And one time in reverse. So four okay. times. And I've got it down to 20 hours and 33 minutes. <laughs> and I, I still think I get it down to like well below 20 hours. So. I'm definitely keen to go back. There's always improvements, especially up at altitude. And the, I mean, I'm guessing with the, the timing at starting at that time that you would have crossed the throwing line, the, the daylight. Yep. That's why I started at midnight or around then just so I can hit the throng law at midday. 
every time I've had it midday, it's beautiful up there, like five, yeah. ten degrees, sunny. And all the truckers, they all go up early morning, like four or five, when it's freezing cold and whatnot. Yeah. So by the time I get up there at noon, it's it's no one's up there. It's amazing. It's been some of the best times in Nepal. And that, that working on that timing, I guess that when by the time you get down, you've passed Johnson and you you start to come back down the the valley to Bessie Sahar. I guess that was coming into the dusk, into the dark. Yeah, typically the last bit down the the gorge to yeah. Benny is in the dark, and that's the roughest road of the whole trip. Yeah. So that's but always... it, it, it can be terrible traffic at times on that with with dust. I know some of it's been surfaced now, but there can be a at that time of day where you, you was it was it an issue holding focus and staying safe coming down there in the dark. I mean, there's no dust at that time because all vehicles stop in the evening. Yeah. But it, I mean, you have to be careful because there's a cliff on either like on the, on the <laughs> yeah. left side. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, if you go off that, you're gone. So, yeah, you definitely don't go full gas down there at night. You, uh, I back it off and just make sure I, I end up in, in poker in one piece. And you, yeah. th- through through this, I think you also raised uh, funds for another uh, uh, endeavor that you're passionate about uh, to help young Nepali cyclists in a. I think and there was a, a, a training center. Is is that sort of still ongoing? Yep. So yeah, through the fundraising of the Annapurna two four, yeah, we were able to open up a training center in Kathmandu, and we had one location, and then it shut down during COVID, and then we reopened it after with a better location, which is very sustainable. It's where two other Nepali riders live so they can look after the, the training center. Yeah. And I think it's like 60 or 70 bucks a month for the rent. Yeah. So it's it's been going. And I think the Annapurna fund is going to run out in the next few months, actually. So I'm going to have to do another fundraiser to try and keep it open for a few more years. But yeah, it's 60 bucks a month, say it is. It's not going to be a huge, huge amount. And what what is what exactly is the training center and what what's it about what what is in there and is is there any coaching or any element of education available to the guys? Yeah, so the training center has four or five trainers set up. One of them is a power trainer, so I can do testing on it. One year, I actually flew over my coach Luke Way from Canada and Stacy. They tested all the riders and did bike fits for them. So that's a plan to try and get them back again to retest and refit the riders. And then there's all the gym equipment, the yoga mats, massage gun, air legs, like just the basic stuff so they can go somewhere after the ride and work out. Or when the yep. pollution's too bad, they can go in there when it's raining. And yeah, just another fundraiser will have to be done to get more cash to get some more coaching support for them. But hopefully it's something can keep on going for years, years on end. And also uh, just, just rounding up the, the Nepal side of things, you, you did 
when I say I not say the unthinkable, uh, the incredibly difficult to pull off in, in logistical, legal and physical ways, the FKT to Everest Base Camp, which was about a year ago. How did, I, I know we, we spoke right up and it, it was on tender hooks until the last minute of, there's a lot of bureaucracy uh, and so on involved. Can you tell me about the process of how you came to do it and and also the what what it was actually like undertaking such a, a major a major challenge? Yeah, so I always thought the Everest region was closed to bikes, but then I started seeing pictures of a few riders up there, and apparently you can get like you're allowed to ride it in in the off season when it's not super busy. We have to get the right yeah. permit in Kathmandu. And, and then, yeah, just normal hiking permits at the gate. So I thought, oh, let's do this um, in May when base camps set up with all the climbing expeditions. Mm-hmm. We'll have to wait till later in May. So once the main trekking season's done. And so, yeah, I was over in Nepal and training out of the monastery in the Solakumbu again, just to get the altitude in. And then I was all, my plan was to bike to Lukla and then start the FKT because I heard the road went to Lukla. So it'd be like a, I thought a four or five hour ride. Yeah. But as, as it goes, the road ended about 12K short of Lukla. And that 12K was like hike a bike and the most rugged donkey trail you can imagine. And I got halfway there, like 6K from Lukla. But I was already like destroyed from hike biking and well not destroyed, but I'd, I wasn't in shape to do FKT at this point. <laughs> so I was like, okay, like this isn't the time. Let's fly back to Canada soon. Like let's just go back to the monastery and train. Get ready for the season. So I went back to the monastery and then the Nepal Tourism Board said, like, hey, we want you to do this. Um, we'll help support the trip. And so I was like, okay, well, maybe it's back on. So I got to find a helicopter ride. And just by chance, yeah. there's a helicopter going there the next day. And I could get on there for like 150 bucks or whatever it was, like to take an equipment in. Okay. So that was the plan. And unfortunately, the helicopter got delayed a day. So now I was like really on the limit of if I was going to make it. But anyways, the helicopter went the next day and I, I went for it, landed in Lukla. Then the plan was to get the permits, go to sleep for a few hours, and then start at midnight. But unfortunately, the one permit, the cycling permit, you have to get in Kathmandu at an office. So I called my buddy. He went to the office, got it. But he had to pay for it at a bank, which is like across town. And <laughs> he got stuck in traffic and didn't get to the bank in time. And it was silly. It was like, I think it was $6 he had to pay or something. It was, yeah. so anyways that delayed me another day and it got to the point where i was like like i'd actually have to get the fkt to get my flight back home and i was down (laughs) to the hour (laughs) and i I was like whatever like i'm here the chance of me being back here with everything set to go is like it it takes so much effort so let's just do it now and hopefully i get back to canada maybe i don't so i started the fkt at two in the morning just to avoid all the traffic between Lukla and Namche between yep. the donkeys and the hikers 
And we had organized to have the park gate. There's a park gate about 10K into the ride. Yeah. Which is closer in the night. We had organized for it to be open for me to come through. But of course, when I got there at four in the morning, it was closed. And the army <laughs> guys just said like, no, you got to wait till daylight. There's tigers in here and they're going to get you or whatever. So <laughs> I called up the Nepal tourism board. I was like, hey, you guys said the gate would be open. Can you tell these guys to open it, please? Because I can't really sit here for two and a half hours. <laughs> and it delayed the FKT a half hour, but they finally opened the gate. And then I could continue on. And really, the FKT went pretty well. There wasn't much trail traffic. And I was on pace to beat the running record of 11 hours and two minutes until okay. I got to the last 5K of the FKT. After Lobuche, it's a rough trekking trail over glaciers. And it's basically hike a bike for hours on end. And at that point, a lot of the base camps getting um, hauled back down. There's a lot of porters and yak on the trail. Yeah. So I, it was very slow going for a while. And I ended up in base camp for 11 hours, 19 minutes. So, I mean, cycling is FKT, cause it, but the running was still about 15 minutes faster. But if I didn't get stuck at the gate for a half hour, I think I would have got it. <laughs> and what, so I mean, what, uh, sorry, from a, from a personal point of view, how did, how did that compare to the Annapurna? I think the Annapurna, I kind of knew I was getting myself into. And like 24 hours was a, a solid goal to beat. With the Everest region, I just wanted to kind of do it. <laughs> mm. and, and I had no idea how long it was going to take. I was surprised how close it was to the running time. Because I thought the running yeah, time would be yeah. a lot quicker, but yeah. a lot more of a drivable than I imagined. And I think, like, we're talking about doing a runner versus biker challenge at some point. Tyler Andrews, he's a professional runner. He holds many FKTs around the world and, like, Kilimanjaro and all over. Yeah. So we want to do a, a race, biker versus runner, and see how it goes. Um, I'm pretty excited for it. Because I know when he did his FKT, he also had some challenges. Yeah. So I think we could both go well below 11 hours and yeah i mean at the same time i want to do fkt up and down so next time i'll i'll flip and head back to lukla to get that done the first time i did it i hung out on base camp for a couple hours just it was such a cool experience yeah and then i tried to get back to lukla but a big storm came in so i had to stop in downstream for the night but yeah, anyways, it's an awesome the, region. It's high consequence, though, because there yeah. are, like, you want to crash in a lot of spots there. And there's a lot of steps yeah. that you can, you can ride all the steps, but you have to commit to them. So it's it's rugged riding. It's fun. It's challenging. <laughs> and what what uh, kind of a reception did you get? Did you get, a, was it from a prominence and from a personal and a career and exposure point of view? like a a major thing a game changer because everybody knows every space camp or was there also was that balanced with did you get a lot of uh, animosity about biking a trail and biking that trail fast or was was there any issues everyone on the trail was great i was pretty cautious 
and gave way to the truckers. I was pretty nice to them. Yeah. But everyone was, no, they were cheering me on and like, yeah, I'd say 97% were very supportive. There was an odd trucker that didn't like it. And yeah. after on the internet, there's a bit of backlash from, I guess, the mountain guides or whoever that might have been, I don't know. I think they think it's their mountain and they don't like other people treading on it. <laughs> yeah. So uh, there was a bit of backlash there. Like, why would someone do that? Like, they didn't even enjoy it. They should enjoy the scenery next time. And it's like, well, you know what? I've yeah, been up yeah. there many times. And to be honest, like to see the whole Everest region in one day is pretty awesome. <laughs> yeah. So before you bash on me too much, like you should try it out yourself. <laughs> but I mean, those, those crusty guys, you just like, whatever, let them be. Um, overall, it's good reception. It didn't, it didn't really get much media attention. I'm not sure why. But, I mean, end of the day, I do this stuff because I love it. So it doesn't bother me too much. <laughs> and you, you mentioned earlier also the, the runner in the FKC on Kilimanjaro, which you also did a couple of years ago also in uh, well, no, a lockdown or finding yourself stranded because of the, the pandemic. How, when, when, when you look at your, your FKTs, your race results, what stand out your your travels your, what what stand out as the most poignant not necessarily the most successful but the most meaningful to you um to me the world 24 hour titles are the most meaningful just because i worked so hard to get them and because of the fitness i had during those races like yeah. those are the races i was the strongest i've ever been and I mean, it's not an easy title to grab. We have races like Jason English and um, Brazil Marathon Champs, and like you have very fast riders in there. But yeah, I'm pretty proud of how well I rode 24 hours. Like, I think in a couple of those, I don't think there's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's the fittest I've ever been. Yeah. The FKTs, those are awesome challenges. The Kilimanjaro one. There's always so many X factors. Like Kilimanjaro, I could barely pull off because they have the mandatory guide rule. So I, yeah. I had to kind of sneak around that a bit. And we yeah, have the other, the two Canadian marathon champs. Those are pretty meaningful in my career too. Especially the second one in Squamish, where some of our top XC stars showed up. Yeah. And it was nice to to win that title against those guys and then of course the bc bike race in 2016 i think it was that was a that was a big one in my career beating a couple of america's top riders at the moment yeah and i just had so many problems that race flat tires and broken chains and and i could fight back every time and i think the last day i had a two minute gap no a minute gap to make up and i won by two minutes to take the title by like 50 some yeah. seconds and i think that was the fastest i've ever been like the 24 hours it's the strongest like endurance i've had but yeah. bcbr i had some amazing form that year so i yeah it's been cool like when i focus on the races i can really nail them but at the same time yeah. a lot of like i'm more focused on the adventure side so i often show up at races at like 85 <laughs> percent. yeah yeah 
<laughs> but at the same time, that's why I've raced so long because I've enjoyed it. <laughs> and just to to round things up because time's moving on, and uh, you, I believe you you have your your own event coming up. Can you tell me about it and the also a little bit about the learning curve of actually transitioning to organizing an event and dealing with all of the the, the bureaucracy and the details that goes that goes into it yeah so i organized the rockies 2-4 a 24-hour race in canmore alberta the canmore nordic center yeah and yeah it's fun to be on the other side of the tape i spent so many years racing i've seen so many races in my career that i feel like i know what a race should look like and yeah i have big aspirations for this one the 24 hours of adrenaline used to be a huge race in canmore and i mean i think this rock is too far can get back to that big atmosphere i was down in arizona at the 24 hours of old pueblo this past weekend there's two and a half thousand racers like a village of five thousand people and it's, it's just unreal the atmosphere and how much fun everyone's having and i think i think the xc racing scene is missing that right now is was big festival like events it's like the burning man of yeah. mountain biking pretty much yeah. so I, I mean it's been a challenge to get the race off the ground um just getting that motivation back into people because like they forgot how cool it was <laughs> yep but it's a good it's a good uh, challenge and i'm sure it'll keep growing year after year and yeah it gives me something uh easy physically to work on after my training rides, mentally challenging. <laughs> <laughs> that's, uh, that's great. I wish you all the best with it. And of course, with the upcoming season and the next adventures, and hopefully we can catch up again later in the year to see what's happened, how things are going and what's changed. And meantime, Corey, as ever, thank you for your time. It's always always fascinating, especially for, I hope, for, for listeners who perhaps don't know an awful lot and can't appreciate that extreme side of the world. So thank you, Corey. Yes, thank you, Steve. It's always a pleasure to be on your podcast. And uh, yeah, to okay, great. do this kind of thing with you. Great. Well, we'll speak to you again next time. Okay, bye for now. Bye for now.